Hello, it's time to read the Des Moines Register for today, Monday, October 30th. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of Iowans with a print disability. My name is Rachel Mithelman, and my partner at the microphone for the next 90 minutes is Nicole Tam. For the first hour, we'll cover local and national news from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Our second hour starts with birthdays and obituaries, followed by opinions, sports, and lifestyle news. We'll wrap up our broadcast with Dear Abby. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register and donations from individuals and listeners like you. Learn how you can keep the volunteer voices of Iris going strong at iowaradioreading.org. At the request of our listeners... Iris is moving the airtimes of some of our newspapers. The Mason City Globe Gazette and Fort Dodge Messenger have been combined into a one-hour show that you will hear at noon. At 1 p.m., it's the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. 2 p.m., the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Your Cedar Rapids Gazette is now on at 3 p.m. each day. 4 p.m., it's the Sioux City Journal at 5 you can hear the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. 6 p.m. is the rebroadcast of Des Moines Register. At 8, you'll hear the, mag- the Capital Dispatch. 9 p.m., it's the Atlantic Magazine. And 10 p.m. is the Wall Street Journal. And we wind up the day with the New York Times at 11 p.m. Now let's take a look at the weather and the headlines from today's Des Moines Register. Going to be chilly today, a high of 42 and a low tonight of the mid-20s. Then this week, a slight morning uh, warming trend, 38 on Tuesday, 46 on Wednesday, 54 on Thursday, and up into the 60s on Friday before the temperatures start to drop again. On our front page, the headlines are Trump leads big, Haley ties DeSantis in fight for second, Pence drops out of 2024 GOP presidential race, and residents upset over skywalk closures. Now here is Nicole with our first article. Rachel, thank you. The big story on the front page today is, of course, the election because of the poll results that came out today. So we will begin with that. It's quite lengthy. So Rachel and I will be switching off as we read along this article. So as mentioned, the headline for this is Trump leads big. Haley ties DeSantis in fight for second. There are three images at the top of the newspaper. It shows Trump has 43 percent of support in the poll. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 16 percent, while Nikki Haley ties with him at 16 percent as well. Support for Nikki Haley has swelled in Iowa. The former United Nations ambassador has pulled even with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in what has become a heated battle for second place in the first in a nation caucus state. But former President Donald Trump still dominates the race. He is ahead by 27 percentage points. That's a lead that has expanded slightly despite his mounting legal problems. A new Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom Iowa poll shows that 43% of likely Republican caucus goers choose Trump as their first choice for president, up from 42% in an August Iowa poll. 
DeSantis and Haley are now tied for second place with 16%. That is a drop of three percentage points for DeSantis, who was the first choice for 19% of caucus goers back in August. And it's a 10% jump for Haley, who was at 6%. Pollster J.N. Saltzer, that's the president of Saltzer and Cole, which conducted this Iowa poll, says that you just have Haley rising. You have DeSantis kind of holding on for second place. But both of them are on the ground that you could only describe as shaky compared to the solid ground that Donald Trump stands on. If anything, he is showing improvement. Recently, Haley and DeSantis have spent more time battling with each other than with Trump, particularly over their approach to the Israel-Hamas war. Each has targeted the other in television ads and on the campaign trail. And both of these candidates have recently announced that they would increase their Iowa presence as this race to caucus day on January 15th enters its final months. Aaron Rush, a 39-year-old poll respondent from Waterloo, lists DeSantis as his top choice for president but is weighing support for Haley. He says that he's been watching presidential polls and debates to help him decide between the two candidates. More than anything, he says, he wants to find a candidate who looks like that they can beat Trump. He likes U.S. Senator Tim Scott, but doesn't include him in his top two because of the senator's poor poor showing in other polls. Rush says the ability to beat Trump right now is more important than any sort of policy differences that you're going to get between the rest of the field. The remaining candidate pool is largely stagnant. Scott is at 7%, down from 9%. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is at 4%, down from 5%. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy held steady at 4%. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum rose from 2% to 3%. And former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson rose from 0% to 1%. Texas pastor Ryan Binkley is still at 0%, failing to gain any support after also polling at 0% in the August Iowa poll. Former Vice President Mike Pence dropped out of the race on Saturday, saying, quote, this is not my time. The new Iowa poll results back that up, with only 2% of likely Republican caucus goers naming him as their first choice. That was down from 6% in the August Iowa poll. Overall, likely Republican caucus goers say that their first choice for president is more about issues, that's 63% of them, than leadership style, that's 29% of them, as they wade through the still crowded field. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus goers was conducted between October 22nd to the 26th, and it has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. Haley has doubled her support with independents, which has helped propel her into second-place tie, according to Seltzer. In August, Trump and DeSantis were nearly evenly split among independent caucus-goers, 21% of them supporting Trump as their first choice and 19% of them supporting DeSantis. But Trump now leads DeSantis with independents 33% to 12%. And Haley has also overtaken the Florida governor with independents. 22% list her as their first choice for president. That is up from 10% back in August. Seltzer says that this is a group that is fickle and on the small side, but it could be an important group to watch for as the race progresses, she said. Independents do make up 21% of the poll's respondents. Kelly Hester, that's a poll participant who identifies as an independent, said that Haley is her top choice for president. She said the Republicans have ticked me off as of lately with their stance on gay rights, transgender, and especially abortion rights, but I definitely lean Republican fiscally. 
She thinks that Trump has ticked off too many people and won't be able to defeat Democrat Joe Biden. Hester says that she saw Haley during the debates and appreciated her positions on foreign policy, abortion, and border security. And she thinks that Haley has a better shot at winning than Trump. So uh, Hester is a Solon resident, and she says that I would like to hear her in person because I'm not set in stone. But so far, she's definitely been my favorite. One possible advantage for Haley, Seltzer says, is that she gets support across a much broader demographic range than DeSantis. In addition to her strong showing with independence, Haley leads both Trump and DeSantis with suburban poll respondents. 32% of them say that Haley is their first pick for president. Continuing, DeSantis is at 29% and Trump is at 24%. Haley also leads DeSantis among those with a college degree, 22 to 16%. Among men 65 or older, 23 to 17%. White women with a college degree, 24 to 15%. And women 44 or younger, 22 versus 13%. DeSantis leads Haley among men under the age of 45, by 22% to 13%. Selzer said, it's not just one particular group where she's really dug in. She's digging in across demographics. So how much crossover is there between supporters for Trump, DeSantis, and Haley? Of those who named DeSantis as their first choice for president, 27% named Haley as their second choice, but 41% say their second choice is Trump. For Haley, 34% of her first-choice supporters picked DeSantis as their second choice for president. 19% select Scott, and 14% choose Burgum. Just 12% say Trump is their second-choice candidate. Selzer said, to my mind, she's done the best job of differentiating that she is the non-Trump candidate, to the extent that they don't see him as even a second-choice. Of those who named Trump as their first choice for president, 41% say DeSantis is their second choice. Haley is at 16% and Ramaswamy is at 15%. In addition to leading overall, Trump performs better than his opponents across nearly every demographic the poll tested, including among first-time caucus-goers. Trump has maintained his lead there, with 49% of first-time caucus-goers saying he is their first choice. DeSantis is at 15% and Haley at 14%. Those who name Trump as their first choice are also more enthusiastic about their pick, the poll shows. Overall, 30% of likely caucus-goers say they are extremely enthusiastic about their first choice for president. Among Trump voters, It's 47%, about twice what it is among DeSantis voters at 25%. Among Haley voters, it is even lower, at 19%. That may be a sign that although although Haley is the only candidate seeing substantial upward momentum in this poll, Selzer said the ground underneath her could be a little shaky. Trump's support is also more firmly locked in. Overall, 54% of likely Republican caucus-goers have a first choice for president and say they could still be persuaded to support a different candidate. 
Fewer, 41%, say their minds are made up. But that number is much higher among Trump supporters, with 63% saying their minds are made up. A smaller share, at 37%, say they could still be persuaded to pick another candidate. This solid ground is what makes people want to say he's invincible, Seltzer said of Trump. Poll respondent Dennis Konarski, age 73, said that as long as Trump is in the race, he plans to support him. He said, if Trump's not running, I would have to look to see what the other candidates stand for. Otherwise, it's Trump all the way. He's my hero. Him and Jesus are my heroes. Support for DeSantis and Haley is less solid. 30% of DeSantis supporters say their minds are made up, while 70% still could still be persuaded. And for Haley, even fewer, 26% say their minds are firmly made up. The rest, 74%, say they could still be persuaded. Is it inevitable that Donald Trump will win the Iowa caucuses? Trump leads by a commanding margin, but Iowa caucus goers have not shut the door on alternatives, the Iowa polls suggest. Iowa caucus goers are known for considering many candidates before slowly zeroing in on one person by caucus day. The poll shows that just 4% of respondents have narrowed the list of candidates they are considering to just one. Instead, 22% are considering two candidates, and 72% are considering three or more candidates. Overall, 67% of likely Republican caucus goers say they are considering caucusing for Trump, even if he is not their first choice. That 67% includes the 43% who say he is their first choice, 12% who say he is their second choice, and 12% who say they are actively considering him. Trump's total is matched by the 67% who say they are considering caucusing for DeSantis. DeSantis' universe of support includes the 16% who say he is their first choice, 27% who say he is their second choice, and 25% who say they are actively considering him. Although Haley is tied with DeSantis overall, the poll shows she has a smaller universe of people considering her at 54%, although that's up from the 40% who were considering her in August. Her footprint includes the 16% who say she is their first choice, 17% who say she is their second choice, and 22% who say they are actively considering her. Scott follows with 49% who say they are actively considering him, which is down from 53%. That includes the 7% who name him as their first choice, 10 who name him as their second choice, and 32% who are considering him. Selzer said of Scott, he's on the cusp of being in the top tier. Most of that is people saying that they're actively considering him. But that's not where you want your support to be happening unless you've got a very specific strategy that is designed to identify people who are on the edge and sort of make them, force them to take a different look. Because, they, because the look they're getting now isn't sufficient to turn into first or second choice votes. Trailing the polling leaders are Ramaswamy, 30%, 
32% down from 34. Burgum at 19% down from 23, and Christie 16% down from 21. Hutchinson and Binkley are in the single digits with footprints of 9 and 6%, 6% respectively. These are campaign, campaigns that don't appear to be getting traction, Seltzer said. Although Scott had the highest net favorability rating in August, DeSantis now holds that title. Today, DeSantis is viewed favorably by 69%, up from 66 in August, and he is viewed unfavorably by 26%, down from 29%. Another 5% aren't sure. Selzer said he's likable enough, with higher favorables than Trump. It's just that many more want Trump as their first choice. Trump is viewed favorably by 66%, a new high, after getting 65% in August, and he is viewed unfavorably by 32% compared with 33% in August. Just 1% are not sure. Scott also maintains high favorable ratings, with 61% saying they view him favorably compared with 59% in August. Another 22% view him unfavorably, up from 17%. Another 17% are not sure. In addition to climbing to tie for second place with DeSantis, Haley's favorability ratings have also improved, though she remains lower than DeSantis, Trump, and Scott. Now she is viewed favorably by 59% of likely Republican caucus goers, up from 53% in August. She is viewed unfavorably by 29%, up slightly from 26% in August. The percentage of those who are not sure about Haley has shrunk from 21 to 13 percent as she becomes better known. Three candidates are underwater with their favorability rating, viewed unfavorably by more likely caucus goers than favorably. They are Binkley, Christie, and Hutchinson. Ramaswamy has become better known since August, when 41% of likely Republican caucus goers didn't know enough about him to say whether they had a favorable or unfavorable view of him. That is down to 20% now, following two national debates where Ramaswamy claimed the spotlight, but his negatives also doubled during that same time. The percentage of those who view him unfavorably has risen from 20 to 37% while the percentage of those who view him favorably has increased from 38 to 43 percent. Christie remains the candidate with the highest unfavorable rating. The former New Jersey governor has not campaigned in Iowa this cycle, but he has been featured in both debates aggressively attacking Trump. Christie is viewed favorably by 20 percent of poll respondents, down from 28 percent in August, and he is viewed unfavorably by 69%, up from 60%. Des Moines Register reporter Samantha Hernandez contributed to this report. Brianne Fannensteel is the chief politics reporter for the Register, and she can be reached at bpfann at dmreg.com. 
All right, before we move on to the analysis, just want to share about the Iowa poll that is provided by the Register. The Iowa poll, again, was conducted on October 22nd to the 26th of this year for the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom by Seltzer and Company of Des Moines. It is based on telephone interviews with 404 registered voters in the state who say they will definitely or probably attend the 2024 Republican caucuses. Interviewers with the Quantel Research contacted 30... Uh, 30 3,028 randomly selected voters from the Iowa Secretary of State's voter registration list by telephone. The sample was supplemented with additional phone number lookups. These interviews were administered in English. Responses for all the contacts were adjusted by age, sex, and congressional district to reflect on their proportions among voters in that list. The questions based on the sample of 404 voters likely to attend the 2024 Iowa Republican caucuses have a maximum margin of error of plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. So that means that if this is the survey that were repeated using the same questions and the same methodology, 19 times out of 20, the findings would not vary from the true population value by more than plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. Results based on smaller samples of respondents, such as by gender or age, have larger margins of error. And there is a note that we're publishing the copyright Iowa poll without credit to the Des Moines Register, NBC News, and Mediacom is prohibited. With that, we move on to more analysis from the Register regarding this poll. On page 6A, it says, poll shows that every GOP candidate's support, written by Stephen Gruber Miller from the Des Moines Register. Former President Donald Trump holds a 27 percentage point lead in the latest Des Moines Register, NBC News, Mediacom, Iowa poll, while Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley locked in that battle for second place. But despite lagging Trump by 43 percent to 16 percent, DeSantis matches Trump's, quote, footprint, that combination of likely GOP caucus-goers who say the candidate is either their first choice for president, their second choice, or someone they are actively considering supporting. By that metric, Trump and DeSantis are even, with 67% of likely caucus-goers actively considering each candidate in some way. Haley, who posed evenly with DeSantis at 16% on first-choice support, is the only other candidate whose footprint encompasses a majority of likely caucus-goers with 54%. The poll of 404 likely Republican caucus-goers was conducted, again, October 22nd to 26th by Seltzer and Company. The margin of error is plus or minus 4.9 percentage points. The field has narrowed slightly since the summer when 14 candidates were competing for the Republican nomination. But several candidates who remain in the nine-person field received little support in the poll. So here's how every candidate is viewed by likely Republican caucus-goers. We'll start with Donald Trump. Trump has widened his lead slightly since the last Iowa poll in August. Now, 43% of likely caucus-goers pick Trump as their first choice, while 16% choose DeSantis and 16% choose Haley. Trump's total Iowa footprint of 67% of likely Republican caucus-goer means that more than two-thirds of caucus-goers are considering him in some way. That includes 43% who say Trump is their first choice, 12% who say he is their second choice, and 12% who say they are actively considering him. Uh, there's a note here that says for all the candidates, the footprint figure and the sum of the first and second choices and those actively considering a candidate may defer because of rounding. 
Trump supporters are also highly enthusiastic about his candidacy. Nearly half of them, 47%, say that they are extremely enthusiastic about Trump, while another 40% say they are very enthusiastic. Just 13% say that they're mildly enthusiastic, and no one reports being not that enthusiastic. Nearly two thirds of those who name Trump as their first choice say that their mind is made up. That's 63% of them. While over one third, 37% of them say that they could still be persuaded to switch their choice. Trump's favorability among likely Republican caucus goers is at 66%, while the percentage of those who view him unfavorably have dropped to 32%. They're Trump's best marks among likely Republican caucus goers in an Iowa poll. Now, candidates' total favorability or unfavorability may differ slightly as well from the breakdown of these ratings because of rounding. Next, we move on to Ron DeSantis. DeSantis has seen his support fall slightly since August, when 19% of likely Republican caucus goers named him as their first choice. Now he sits at 16%, tied with Haley. But DeSantis is the only candidate to match Trump in total footprint. 67% of likely GOP caucus goers are now considering him in some way. That includes 16% who say DeSantis is their first choice, 27% who say he is their second choice, and 25% who say they are actively considering him. The level of commitment among DeSantis' supporters is nearly the inverse of Trump's. Just under one third, 30%, say they are firmly committed to caucusing for DeSantis. While more than two thirds, 70% of them say they could still be persuaded to support somebody else. A quarter of DeSantis' supporters, 25% of them, say they're extremely enthusiastic about his candidacy. While 40% say that they're very enthusiastic, and 33% describe themselves as mildly enthusiastic. 1% say they are not that enthusiastic. DeSantis is the only candidate tested in the poll who is viewed favorably by more likely GOP caucus goers than Trump. 69% view DeSantis favorably, while 26% of them view him unfavorably. Nikki Haley is now tied for second place with DeSantis, and a majority of likely Republican caucus goers say they are considering her in some way. Her footprint of 54% of likely Republican caucus goers includes. 16% of them who say they are or she is their first choice, 17% who say she is their second choice, and 22% of them say they are actively considering her. Haley's support has risen by 10% percentage points since August, when she was the first choice of 6% of likely caucus goers. That is the largest increase in support of any candidate in the poll. Just over one quarter of Haley's supporters, 26% of them, say their mind is made up, while nearly three quarters of them, that's 74%, say that they could still be persuaded to support another candidate. 19% of Haley's supporters describe themselves as extremely enthusiastic, while 56% of them say they are very enthusiastic. 19 are mildly enthusiastic, and 5% are not that enthusiastic, and 1% are not sure. Haley's favorability has increased from 53% in August to 59% in October. The number of likely GOP caucus goers who view her unfavorably has also ticked up from 26% to 29%. Next, we are moving on to U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. He has slipped to fourth place in the latest Iowa poll, with 7% of likely GOP caucus goers naming him as their first choice, compared to 9% in August. Scott's footprint has also shrunk from 53% in August to 49% in October. 
His current support includes seven percent who say he is their first choice, ten percent who say he is their second choice, and thirty-two percent who say they're actively considering him. The percentages of likely GOP caucusgoers who view Scott favorably and unfavorably have both grown since August. His overall favorability has risen from 59% to 61%. Meanwhile, 22% now view him unfavorably. That is up from 17% in August. Vivek Ramaswamy, the biotech entrepreneur and author, draws support from 4% of likely Republican caucusgoers who say he is their first choice and holding steady from August. His total footprint of 32% of likely GOP caucusgoers includes. Four percent who say he is their first choice, nine percent who say he is their second choice, and nineteen percent who say they are actively considering him. Ramaswamy has gained attention since the summer with a pair of sharp-elbowed presidential debate performances, where he lobbed attacks at several of his rivals and was also on the receiving end as well. He's now viewed favorably by 43% of likely Republican caucusgoers. That's an increase of five percentage points since August. However, he is viewed unfavorably by 37%, an increase of 17 percentage points. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who has focused all of his attention on New Hampshire and has not campaigned in Iowa, is the first choice of 4% of likely GOP caucusgoers. His footprint has dropped from 21% of likely Republican caucusgoers in August to 16% in October. That includes 4% who say Christie is their first choice, 2% who say he is their second choice, and 10% who say they are actively considering him. Christie's favorability, already underwater by a two-to-one margin in August, has worsened in the current poll. Now, 20% of likely GOP caucusgoers view him unfavor or view him favorably, and 69% of them view him unfavorably. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is the first choice of 3% of likely Republican caucusgoers. His overall footprint has shrunk from 23% of likely GOP caucusgoers in August to 19% in October. That includes 3% who say Burgum is their first choice, 3% who say he is their second choice, and 13% who say they are actively considering him. Burgum is better known than in August than the percentage points then of likely GOP caucusgoers who view him favorably also went up from 38% to 42%, but he has seen a greater increase in the percentage of caucusgoers who view him unfavorably, from 16% in August to 27% in October. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is the first choice of one percent of likely Republican caucusgoers. His total footprint of nine percent of caucusgoers includes one percent who say he is their first choice, one percent who say he is their second choice, and seven percent of folks who say they are actively considering him. Hutchinson's favorability among likely GOP caucusgoers has decreased by three percentage points since August, and now it sits at seventeen percent. Meanwhile, he's now viewed unfavorably by 45%. That's also an increase of 13 percentage points since August. And finally, Ryan Binkley, the Texas businessman and pastor, is the first choice of zero percent of likely Republican caucusgoers. His total footprint of six percent of likely Republican caucusgoers includes zero percent who say he is their first choice, one percent who say he is their second choice, and five percent who say they are actively considering him. Thirteen percent of likely GOP caucusgoers view Bankley favorably, while twenty-eight percent view him unfavorably. Fifty-nine percent do not know enough to form an opinion. 
Thanks, Nicole. Another story from the front page, residents upset over skywalk closures. Locking doors for safety limits their access. This is by Noel Elvise Grancy of the Register. John Taylor remembers when the downtown skywalk was full of small businesses. The office of his eye doctor for 15 years is now empty. A long-ago favorite, Stella's Blue Sky Diner, where waitresses poured milkshakes and glasses on customers' heads, has been replaced with panda Chinese food. Taylor has used the skywalk for nearly 40 years to walk to work from his downtown apartment. In that time period, he says he has watched the skywalk slowly decline. Every winter is worse than the prior year, Taylor said, about the number of homeless people who sleep in the skywalk. Last year, he said he counted around 21 people sleeping in one night. To help bring that number down and address concerns over safety and cleanliness, the Skywalk Association started in late September locking several doors overnight. It's a trial run estimated to last a couple of years. But tenants who live in downtown apartments with connections to the Skywalk say the result has meant limited access for residents particularly those who park in parking garages with entrances behind locked doors. Taylor says he also wants to use the skywalk at night to avoid being outside in the dark and still reach his daily 10,000-step goal. The tenants say they're frustrated by the changes and have not had their ideas and have not had their ideas to accommodate them heard. Seven doors now lock from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. as a trial run to see if conditions in the Skywalk improve, said Chad Bensinger, Skywalk Association president. The overnight closures are a temporary solution that he estimated will last for one to two years. The association believes locking those doors will reduce the footprint security has to control overnight. Security will sweep the locked area to make sure no one is inside, and ask Operation Downtown to address any messes before people use the skywalk in the mornings, Bensinger said. The doors will stay unlocked for at least two hours following the conclusion of any events at the Iowa Events Center or Des Moines Civic Center. But on nights when there is no event, tenants say they struggle to leave their building and reach their cars. We all moved down here because of the amenity of the Skywalk, said Nancy Thompson, a downtown resident, who shared her concerns with other neighbors in a group interview with the Des Moines Register. But now they've decided there's a problem. We're not going to put enough money into having security doing the Skywalk at night, so we're going to tell all those residents who live here, you just got to stay in at night. Several tenants who spoke to the register park at the Brown parking garage at 401 Grand, which they can't access through the skywalk during locked hours. Instead, they walk at least three blocks outside to reach the parking garage, which they say is a hardship in bad weather. The neighbors say several tenants already have moved out, with the skywalk closure a contributing factor. One person, Thompson said, was a flight attendant who needed to come and go to their car during what the group calls the curfew. 
Thompson said she worries if she moves to a building that has better access, the locked doors will just expand further, restricting access down the line. Bensinger previously told the Register the association may expand the locked doors to other areas of the Skywalk if the test is successful, but said he wouldn't know more for several months. They say they don't understand how pushing both the people sleeping in the Skywalk and the tenants living downtown outside would address safety since both groups would still interact outdoors. Plus, a majority of the group who met with the register said they have never felt unsafe walking through the skywalk at night, regardless of people sleeping inside. For Yutana Grimm, the concern centers around accessibility. Many of the people at Grimm's downtown job are in wheelchairs or have a disability. Many of the tenants are using walkers and wheelchairs, so going outside is not possible, Grimm said. I walk the skywalk and agree that there may be some issues with people without homes and trash left behind. Now the lockdown will force some of these unfortunate people to go back on the streets. So those of us needing to access the skywalk after 10 p.m. have no choice but to walk outside where those same people are. Grimm works 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. and can't get home through the skywalk anymore. She's now worried she will lose her job because she has requested to get off early to get home. Downtown resident Tammy McLaren said the change was discussed in monthly meetings hosted by the Downtown Neighborhood Association over the spring and summer. Residents at the time asked for a key fob or something similar to maintain parking garage access, but according to them, their concerns were ignored. Bensinger said instead of key fobs, the association believes it's, quote, probably more relevant to have people be aware of the hours and operate within the hours versus kind of negating what we're trying to achieve, end quote. Plus, he said, locking the skywalk at night improves users' experiences by preventing them from encountering trash or safety concerns. Bensinger said, I understand that there might be some inconveniences, and I feel for those who may have that, and we're certainly not trying to make it more difficult. But we do believe that this is the best thing for our downtown community and for the safety of the folks who work and live down here. The Skywalk Association has other plans in the works to address concerns with the Skywalk. Bensinger said, including having an outreach program coordinator tasked with staffing and patrolling the skywalks. We certainly don't want it to be a long-term thing, he said, of the locked doors. Another initiative in the works is to install wayfinding kiosks throughout the skywalk. Bensinger said it would include stations where people could get directions on where to shop, get coffee, or find their way. He said we want there to be more of an interactive component to it. They're still gathering and discussing what all that incorporates, but ideally it would help identify either the location that the individual or patron is looking for, but also help to inform them of the businesses and amenities that are available to them in the Skywalk. Des Moines leaders earlier this year also approved a new downtown master plan that includes reimagining the Skywalk as a place for public art, 
pop-up shops and installations and more retail opportunities. Our next story is a short one that's on the same page here. West Harrison teacher sentenced for misconduct. This is written by William Morris of the Des Moines Register. A former Western Iowa music teacher could spend almost 50 years in prison after being convicted of numerous charges of sexual misconduct with students. Benjamin Work, 44 years old, was found guilty last month of seven charges of sexual exploitation by a school employee, six counts of lascivious conduct with a minor, or and three counts of indecent contact with a child. All were from his tenure as a music teacher with the West Harrison Community School District. On October 20th, District Judge Margaret Reyes ordered sentences of between one and five years on each charge, all running consecutively, for a total of 47 years. There is no mandatory minimum work that must be served before being granted parole. Eight recent female students described to investigators similar experiences with work, including him making sexual comments to his students and also disclosing information about his sex life and his marriage. They also said that he made frequent requests that they remove articles of clothing during costume measurements for school plays. That's according to court documents. At trial, work argued that fitting students for costumes was part of his job, and there was no proof that he acted out of prurient interest. Work's attorney did not respond to a message seeking comment on the sentencing. Court records also show he has now filed a notice of appeal. And... Turning to the headlines on the Metro and Iowa section of today's register, here's one that seems appropriate. 39 years and Lynn's haunted house still draws for scares. It's accompanied by a photo of Merlin Lynn, who has had this haunted house in the basement of Lynn's supermarket for 39 years, and another photograph of a very scary creature. This is written by Paris Barraza. Merlin Lynn wasn't familiar with Halloween until he was about 10 or 11 years old, yet he'd be the one to create a haunted house that's operated for 39 years in Des Moines in the basement of a market he previously owned for longer. For decades, families and teenagers have paid to crawl down and test their nerves at Lynn's haunted house in the Highland Park neighborhood in Des Moines. That entrance, paired with the kind of darkness that pre prevents you from seeing where you're going, narrow hallways and some classic scares that jump out at you, has set this haunted attraction apart from others in the Des Moines metro. The man who built it, now 85 years old, can be spotted going in and out of his creation, keeping a watchful eye on the visitors at the haunted house out of concern for the family and loved ones working there while checking that the haunted house is doing what it's supposed to do, give people the fright they paid for. Lynn's haunted house has operated over the years with the help of his children and later grandchildren and friends of the family. One actor, Jim Whitland, has been working at Lynn's haunted house for 20 years. He's in a clown costume at the haunted house but he's not the only person there who has more than a decade of experience with Lynn's haunted house. That's what makes things good, when you don't have to have new help every year, Lynn told the Des Moines Register, because these people that I get, they know exactly what to do and when to do it, and their timing is good. 
Before Lynn's haunted house comes to a close, on Halloween, the register spoke with Lynn and his wife, Sherry, about the history of the haunted house in Des Moines. Lynn first built a haunted house in the garage of his home in Des Moines that he still lives in today. It was for his kids. It was for his four children and intended for little kids. When Lynn decided to build a haunted house for the basement of his store, Lynn's supermarket, his family, and some of the employees at the store had doubts, he recalled. During the day, Lynn worked the store. At night, he was crafting what would become a staple for community members for years to come, hauling away junk, Sherry said, and bringing in lumber to construct the walls that would create a path for visitors at the attraction. It wasn't ready when Halloween came around and opened instead in 1984. The first year it turned into just a phenomenal thing, he said. I was shocked. Like the garage in his home, Lynn's haunted house was intended for kids to enjoy, but he underestimated just how many kids are afraid of the dark. And Lynn's haunted house is, at times, so dark it's easy to bump into walls. In its second year, he saw the adults come out for the haunted house, appreciative of how unique it was. It's not gory, an intentional decision by Lynn, because he built this with kids in mind. Rather, it's an experience that builds on the suspense as people crawl down into the dark and navigate sharp turns with the knowledge that actors are waiting to jump out at them. Lynn eventually used the entire basement for the haunted house. Over the years, he's added to his scares with motion sensors that trigger a loud alarm as you walk by, for example. He's also made adjustments to the space. For example, one tunnel was slowing visitors down, Sherry recalled. Or when he had to create a second exit, hauling out dirt and installing a staircase that can lead thrill-seekers out of the basement. That was a big expense, Sherry said. Lynn is confident in everything he does. Still, he was aware that if the haunted house he built ended up being a bust, it would be his children who'd have to hear all about it at school. Lynn's children, now adults, have recognized how much the haunted house has evolved since its early days when they worked it, calling it primitive compared to now, Sherry said. Like the Lynn children, many have grown up with the haunted house. Lynn's haunted house gets visitors whose parents and grandparents went through the haunted house. They've also had people return to the haunted house while they're visiting from out of state. Lynn became the owner of the market in the 1960s. He worked there since he was a teenager when his responsibilities included stocking shelves and pricing merchandise. Des Moines wasn't always home for him, though. Lynn grew up on a farm in Dayton before moving to Des Moines when he was still a child. When he moved, he learned about Halloween, thanks to some neighborhood boys who were going trick-or-treating, Lynn said. The treats he got, an apple or a candy bar, were a big thing for him. He said, I'd get home and I'd look at all this, and I thought, man, I have never had this much stuff. It was tough for him to step away from the supermarket, Lynn said. He leased the supermarket to new owners in 2016 and sold the market in 2020. I enjoyed the people, and I enjoyed everything about it, Lynn said. And when I did something, I knew that whatever I did, I was doing it for the store and not specifically for myself, because it all helped me, too. It was a fun part of my life. 
Despite the change in ownership, Lynn's haunted house continues inside the store he knows so intimately. People continue gathering in the alleyway at the haunted house's entrance. There's a bowl of free candy for visitors, and now there are cozies, koozies available to purchase for $5 for people looking to have a memento of their visit. Watching people have fun at the haunted house is a favorite of Lynn's, Sherry said. We don't have enough fun in life, Lynn said. The address of Lynn's haunted house is 3805 6th Avenue in Des Moines, and the hours are 7 to 10 p.m. on October 26th, 7 to midnight, October 27, 28, and 7 to 10 p.m. October 29th to 31st. And how much does Lynn Haunted House cost? Prices are $25 per person. Perfect for beggars night tonight and Halloween tomorrow for those people looking for something to do in the metro. Next, we are staying in downtown. The library is adding a community fridge on Grand. This is written by F. Amanda Tugate from the Des Moines Register. The Des Moines Public Library is opening another community fridge, this time at its downtown branch on Grand Avenue. The fridge, which is expected to include free perishable foods and ready-to-eat meals, was set to be up and running by October 27th at Central Library. That's at 1000 Grand Avenue in Des Moines. A tiered trolley cart that's parked near the fridge is reserved for pantry staples, such as canned and dry goods. So here's what you need to know about the library's newest community fridge. The Central Library Community Fridge is DMPL, that's the public library's, third installment and part of an ongoing effort to provide patrons services apart from literacy programs. Last winter, DMPL launched two community fridges, one at the Franklin Library on 5000 Franklin Avenue and one at the Southside Library on 1111 Porter Avenue. That's to fill the hunger gaps in the neighborhoods that they serve. Public libraries are so much more than books, Director Sue Woody told the Des Moines Register. They are resource centers, places that are considered free and safe, she said. Ashlyn Lippert, that is the public library's first on-site social worker, echoed Woody and said that libraries play a unique role within the communities they serve and often evolve as the patrons' needs change and grow. Lippert, who serves as the library's community resource specialist, noted Central's location. It is just blocks away from the Central Iowa Shelter and Services and also one of the centers for the youth and shelter services. Lippert said that she had noticed that many of Central Library's visitors are in need of immediate support, and that includes access to food. Lippert says that she and staff are frequently asked, do you guys have anything to eat here? Now, with the new community fridge, Lippert said they can say yes. Central Library's community fridge is for everyone, not just those facing homelessness, Lippert said. With food prices on the rise, Lippert said that she knows the challenges individuals and families face in buying groceries. Community fridges, a nationwide trend that grew during the COVID-19 pandemic, are similar to public libraries. They are free and easily accessible, but unlike food pantries, there's no paperwork to fill out or eligibility requirements. People can just come, grab what they need from the fridge, and go. The community fridge during Central Library's hours are Monday to Thursday from 9 in the morning until 8 at night, Friday from 9 in the morning until 6 at night, Saturday from 10 in the morning until 5 in the evening, and Sunday from 1 in the afternoon until 5 in the evening. 
Lippert said the fridge will be stocked by the library's partnered organizations, but donations are welcomed and encouraged. Lippert says that donors should look into Eat Greater Des Moines guidelines, which can be found online, before dropping off their items at Central Library. Eat Greater Des Moines suggests donations for the community fridges be sealed, dated, and labeled. Donations can include eggs, milk, yogurt, fruits, vegetables, and deli meat. Lipper told the Des Moines Register that she has worked with patrons in need of transportation or housing. She has also helped others learn about mental health services, sign up for benefits such as Medicaid, and also Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, also known as SNAP. They're also helping them navigate legal documents like how to get a power of attorney. Lippert, who's just last month saw more than 50 people, is posted at a desk near the Central Library's entrance from Monday to Friday between 8 in the morning until 4 in the afternoon. Just a few feet away from Lippert's desk is the community fridge and a bookshelf packed with flyers and services that is available in the Des Moines metro. As the library social worker, Lippert says that her role removes those barriers that may have already prevented someone from seeking help. She said somebody doesn't have to have insurance to see me. They don't have to fit some certain program criteria to see me. This is available and free to the public. That, in her eyes, is the truest form of social work. She said we are meeting the need where it's at. Lippert says she's trying to beef up Central Library's Outreach Project. That's an event held twice a week that connects individuals with various agencies and nonprofits like the Des Moines Area Regional Transit Authority, or DART, the Salvation Army of Des Moines, and St. Vincent de Paul of Des Moines. The Outreach Project is held between 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Mondays and Fridays at the library's meeting room wing. No appointments or library cards are needed to speak with Lippert or other representatives from different services. Lippert said she is on the lookout to add more organizations to the outreach project, and those interested can contact her at A.E. Lippert, that is L-I-P-P-E-R-T, at dmpl.org. Also on the front of the Metro and Iowa section, Iowa Supreme Court nixes new trial for man convicted in stabbing death. This is by William Morris of the Register. A Marion man, convicted in a fatal 2018 stabbing, won't get a second trial after all, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled on Friday. Johnny Blonick Church, then known as Drew Blonick, was charged with killing 31-year-old Christopher Bagley of Walker and helping to conceal his body. At trial in 2021, Church argued his actions were justified self-defense, but he was convicted of second-degree murder and other charges. Church appealed his conviction, and the Iowa Court of Appeals in February ordered he be given a new trial, finding the judge had improperly pressured a holdout juror to reach a verdict. The state appealed to the Iowa Supreme Court, and on Friday, a unanimous court upheld Church's conviction, reversing the lower court's decision. Leon Spies, Church's attorney, said the decision is a blow to his client and his family. Spies said in an email, A unanimous panel of the Court of Appeals found that Mr. Church had been denied a fair trial. Of course, I respect the ruling of the Supreme Court, but it's extremely difficult to explain to Mr. Church and his family how the earlier grant of a new trial is now vacated by the court's unanimous opinion to the contrary.
What happened to Christopher Bagley? Prosecutors contended in Church's trial that he had stabbed Bagley 13 times in retaliation for a theft from a drug dealer he was working for. Church and a co-defendant then buried Bagley's body behind Wagner's Cedar Rapids home, they said. His remains were discovered after a months-long search. Church claimed he'd acted in self-defense after Bagley brandished a gun. The judge wrote after the verdict that even if Church had had some initial justification, quote, Church stabbed Bagley so many times and with such ferocity that the force used was not reasonable, end quote. Did the judge's instruction taint jury deliberation? The jurors, who heard Church's case, deliberated for several days, then informed the judge they were deadlocked, 11 to 1, in favor of finding him guilty. Over several notes, the other jurors claimed the sole holdout was refusing to follow jury instructions related to the justification defense and had told the other jurors, quote, I don't care. I'm not changing my opinion, end quote. Over the defense's objection, the judge gave jurors an additional written instruction urging them to reach a verdict, saying they should, quote, lay aside all mere pride of opinion and should bear in mind that the jury room is no place for espousing and maintaining, in a spirit of controversy, either side of a cause, end quote. After three and a half additional hours, the jury finally returned its guilty verdict. The three-judge panel that first heard Church's appeal ruled the judge's instruction had been improper, finding it reinforced the apparent open hostility of other jurors toward the sole holdout. But in Friday's ruling, Justice Christopher MacDonald, writing for the Supreme Court, said Church's case closely tracked with past trials, where the court has upheld jury urging instructions, and that the language of the instruction did not explicitly target the holdout juror, require that the jury reach a verdict, or otherwise inappropriately pressure the jurors to change their minds. The decision means Church will continue to serve his 57-year sentence, as well as a separate 10-year sentence for brutally assaulting a witness against another drug trafficker in the, in the Lynn County Jail. Wagner, the other defendant in Bagley's murder, pleaded guilty before trial and was sentenced to 47 years. Again, that article by William Morris who covers courts for the Des Moines Register. It's almost time to take a break for our birthdays, but let's look at who has a birthday today in the rest of the world. Grace Slick, the singer, is 84. Otis Williams of The Temptations is 82. Henry Winkler of Happy Days is 78. TV journalist Andrea Mitchell is 77. Actor Harry Hamlin is 72. And getting down to the younger people, uh, Gail Garcia Bernal is 45. Fiona Dorif is 42. 
Actor Jane Parrish is 35, and actor Tequan Richmond of Everybody Hates Chris is 31. <laughs> <laughs>